sermon text. If you'll recall, we're doing a sermon series called The King's Ransom, where we're going through the book of Hebrews. And we started that last week. We looked at Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And now we're going to be looking for the, uh, to the second part of that chapter, verses 5 all the way to 14. I'm going to read all of it, Hebrews 1, 1 to 14, which can be found in your bulletin. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will all perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The word of the Lord. Well, I had a special treat this week. I went flying this week. I had a flying lesson. My wife, for my birthday, had gotten me one of these flying lessons, an hour-long flying lesson, one of those Groupon things that come across that you just can't say no to. So it was a wonderful gift, and it was about to expire, so I said, I've got to go do this. So I drove out to the uh, Chesapeake Regional Airport and, uh, you know, checked in with the guy, and he took me out to the airplane. It was a guided flight where I was going to be able to help out with the flight. And he took me, and I looked at the plane, and this thing looked like a tin can on wheels. Remember as a kid, like the little radio flyer wagon? This was a radio flyer wagon with wings. I mean, it was tiny. I was like, there's no way this thing is going to get off the ground. But he said, trust me, it's going to get off the ground. It's a fantastic airplane. Hop in. So we sat right next to each other, and I got to help take off the plane. And the plan was for us to fly to Kitty Hawk around the first flight memorial and back. And so that's what we did. And as we went up in the air, he gave me the controls. And it was one of those things where I have a joystick and he has a joystick. And so his hand was always there just in case. But uh, I was able to fly this plane. And it was fantastic. And so I started to ask him about this plane, you know, because I was amazed at what it could do. I said, you know, what, could we actually roll this plane? And he said, yes, you could roll this plane. To which I said, how about we do it now? No, I didn't say how, you know. So you could roll this plane. Additionally, I said, well, what's the cruise speed on this plane? 
He said it's about 150 miles an hour. So you could go up to 150 miles per hour before this thing would you know, blow up or something. Then I asked him, what is the altitude? Can this thing fly as high as a 747? And he said to me, look, this plane can fly high, but there's no way it can fly as high as a 747. It has limits. And as a pilot, you need to understand the limits so you don't push the plane too far. You know, we all have limits, don't we? Life is about limits. I have this Honda Odyssey outside, and it has a uh, uh, speedometer that says it goes up to 140 miles an hour. But I and you know that if I take it up to about 105, it'll be rattling. And at 106, it'll just spontaneously combust. Just boom. Because it has limits. Just like the plane had limits. A ceiling to which it could no longer go. But we have limits too, don't we? We have financial limits. That if we go beyond, there are consequences. Have emotional limits. There's a point that we can't go past where we just suffer a complete breakdown because we've gone past the limit. There's professional limits. When we go, who among us has gotten into a situation that was beyond us? And we pushed through our limits and had a lot of consequences. And finally, there are spiritual limits to life as well. There are places that we cannot go past without having disastrous consequences. And most of us, at some time or another, have become painfully aware of our limits. Maybe you've reached the ceiling of your limits in terms of flaws of your personality, that thing that continues to come up again and again. And these habits that you want to throw aside, but you continue to bang up against them again and again. We have limits, and it seems like often these limits to us are a prison, that there's no way that we can push through. But much like me in that plane, I had an opportunity to bypass the limits of space. Wouldn't it be neat if we had the ability to bypass the limits of us? To push through those things that continually hold us down and hold us back. And to find the freedom that is on the other side. Well, the question we have is, how can we get through our limits? You see, this passage is all about limits. It's about the limits we place on Jesus and it's about the limits we place on ourselves. In this passage, we see that there's this conversation going on about the angels and about Jesus Christ and the limits that each of them have. See, some teaching has infiltrated this small urban church in this Hellenistic city, it may have been Rome, that has uh, trying to convince these Hebrews, the people in this church, that Jesus is an angel, that he has the limits of an angel, that he cannot go any further. We don't exactly know what the teaching was, but they have some theories. One of them is the uh, religion of Gnosticism had kind of come in. And this whole concept of Gnosticism is there, the, the God that's out there is called the abyss or the pleroma, pure spirit. And we are pure flesh and we're evil. And so the only way to get to this pure spirit, to get up to past that limit, is to get more knowledge or gnosis. And to help you in getting that knowledge are these emanations or angels, 15 pairs of angels that can teach you. And each one is progressively more spiritual. And in fact, Jesus was the first level of the angel. He was number one of 15. He was the bottom of the rung. And so they had heard these teachings and were saying, well, maybe Jesus is just like an angel. Well, 
in, in Jewish teaching, there had, always, there had been an issue as well. Because for the past 400 years, God hadn't spoken. And so these, these rabbis, these scholars, had tried to figure out, well, who was this Messiah and when was he coming? And the theory they had espoused was that there would be a, uh, a, a uh, spiritual Messiah that would come and that would set the religion right. And then there would be a political Messiah that would come and he would set the government and the kingdom aright. But it was actually the archangel Michael who would rule over the new age of the kingdom, this angel. And so they're hearing this teaching that Jesus is just like an angel. He's no different. You know, Jesus is limited. Well, we can identify with that, can't we? Because we've felt those pressures in our society as well, haven't you? This God, this Jesus, don't you think you're making too much of a big deal out of him? I mean, really, you know, the son of God, God, I mean, he was, he was a prophet. He was certainly an enlightened teacher. He showed us the way to God, but don't you think it's a little bit presumptuous to say that Jesus is the one path? There's so many ways out there. Isn't it better to say that he's one path of which there are many? And so we have to ask the question, what are the consequences if Jesus is just an angel? If he's just a spiritual being, an enlightened prophet, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for any special standing that we can hope to have with God? What does it mean if we can know what God is like if God himself has not come to us? Well, this passage gives us the answer that Jesus is on an entirely different level than the angels, an entirely different plane above the angels. And because Jesus has access to the Father, because he has no limits through him, we can have no limits as well. My entire sermon that I'm going to talk on for the next two hours is simply this, that our limits are tied to Christ. The only way to break through our limits is to trust Christ, who has no limits. Christ's altitude determines our altitude. Well, how do we tie our limits to Christ? We have to do three things, this passage tells us. Number one, we have to recognize his name. Number two, we have to respond to his name in worship. And number three, we will receive his renown. Recognize his name respond in worship, and receive his renown. So let's look at these points. Number one, recognize his name. We see here in verse 4 that Jesus uh, had become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Remember last week he talked about Jesus' superiority to the prophets and now to the angels. And as we read this passage, we have to ask two questions. The first is, what is this name he has inherited, which is superior? And the second is, why did he have to inherit it? Hasn't he always been the person that he is? Well, let's look at the first one, the name. Now, in our culture, names don't mean much, do they? My name is Carlos. What's a Carlos? I don't know what a Carlos is. It's simply a symbol that is used to identify me. But names were a big deal back in that day because the name identified the character of the person who was called that name. And we see here in verse 5, for, who, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. 
the name, this excellent name that Jesus has been given is Son. Son of God. Now, to be the Son of God is to be God himself because God, who is God, can only beget himself. And the Son, we see, is eternally begotten. Jesus is the only one who has been called the begotten Son of God. This is the name that he has inherited. And so he uses these two Old Testament verses to prove that Jesus is the Son. The first, which is actually the second one, is Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7.14, which I'm going to break down for you here, where he says, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This prophecy was uttered a thousand years ago before this in the time of King David. If you'll remember, David uh, had... Uh, conquered Jerusalem. He had rest from his enemies. He was living in this beautiful palace. And he said, who am I to be living in this palace while God is dwelling in this tent, the tent of Moses? I need to build a house for God. Well, the next day, Nathan comes back and gives the message, the word from the Lord, that you will not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. Now, keep in mind, the Hebrew word house, bait, this not only means a physical house, but it also means a family line, a dynasty. And so God uses this play on words to show that he's going to build a dynasty for David. Listen to the Lord's words. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom... He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, he's speaking of Solomon who will build, but he's speaking beyond Solomon. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. He's talking about the sin that Jesus takes on. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, God is saying that there is one who will come out of your line and your offspring. This one who is to come, and we don't know when. I will be a father to him, and he will be my son and I will establish in him a kingdom that will be established, and he will rule forever. See, the, the writer is saying that right now, this one Jesus, he's the one that they were talking about. He is the son who has come, and so he is superior to the angels. But we have to ask this question, what about this whole concept of an inheritance? If Jesus is the Son and he's the only begotten Son, why does he have to inherit a name that is more superior? Notice where he says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. What is up with this today? Now you need to understand that this passage is taken from Psalm 2 7. Psalm 2 was a coronation song. So when a king was placed on the throne, they would read Psalm 2. They would read this psalm. But they understood that they were talking about more than just a king. They were talking about this, this Messiah, this one who would come. And the coronation date of a king is, in a sense, the birthday of a king when he ascends to the throne. 
So for instance, Queen Elizabeth is in her 55th year of her reign, whatever it is. Well, Queen Elizabeth is older than 55 years. She's 80 years. But the day, the birthday of her reign was the day when she became the queen. Even sometimes these monarchs take a different name to show their birthday. See, that's what's going on here, that this today is the coronation of Jesus. Jesus always knew that he was the son of God. And in fact, God calls Jesus his son in different places in the scripture. But we see that after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. See, it's his resurrection and his ascension which gives him this title of Son of God. Romans 1.4 puts it this way, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. See, it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. If you read throughout the New Testament, you will always discover that it is God who raises Jesus from the dead and places him at his right hand. So it's God who's making this declaration. And the question is, who is he making this declaration to? He's making the declaration to the world. This is my son. Today I have become his father. I remember recently, it wasn't too long ago, that we went to adopt our daughter Maria. And we had decided we had felt called to Latin America, to Nicaragua, to adopt our daughter. And so we had to go to Nicaragua. But the problem is Nicaragua doesn't do adoption. They don't uh, cooperate with the United States. So if you want to adopt a person in Nicaragua, you have to do it Nicaragua's way. So we, we went down multiple times to spend time because they want you to come down a lot. And we had to use all of their paperwork. We had to use a Nicaraguan attorney. We had to pay crazy money. And we kept on paying money because we had to conform to the specifications of the Nicaraguan government if we wanted to be able to adopt Maria. In fact, Liel and even my wife had to stay in Nicaragua 70 days fostering this child. And, and we came down for a couple weeks until the day when Nicaragua finally found us fit to be parents of Maria. And I can remember the day when we walked into uh, La Familia, which is the adoption agency, the official agency of Nicaragua, and they handed this certification. And before everyone, the director read the certification, the decree that Liellen and I were fit to be the parents of Maria and therefore, she was now their daughter with all the rights and privileges thereof. See, a declaration was made to the world of the fitness of us as parents. And so God has made a declaration of the world of the fitness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Because he has lived as the Son of God. He has left the Father, accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, redeeming his people by dying on a cross without sin and ascending from the grave. And so he is declared before the entire world to be the Son of God. See, there's only one who has done that. 
Some have been res- uh, resuscitated before, but only one has been resurrected. You can tell a lot about a person by the name that they've been given because the name shows their character. Jesus is the Son of God. What is the name that you give to Jesus? What are the limits that you put on him? You may be a spiritual person. You're open to learning spiritual things. You come to church. You read the Bible. But you want to keep an open mind. I mean, there's so many different ways to go to where you need to go. Maybe he's just an angelic being. He's just one way. But the Bible doesn't allow that. See, because God has declared him to be the Son of God. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Giving him a name anything less than the Son of God is not to give him the glory that is due. God has declared Jesus as Son. Will you heed his call? Well, how do we respond if we do heed his call? We recognize his name. The answer is we respond in worship. What do I mean by responding in worship? Look at verse 6. It says, And again, when the angel, uh, again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Notice how God is putting Jesus in a different plane. Now, remember a little bit about these angels, because we've learned something about angels by reading the Bible. They're, they're mighty, powerful spiritual beings. Remember in 2 Kings when an angel goes out into the Assyrian camp and puts to death 185,000 soldiers. Just one angel. Just wipes them all out. And yet God says, let all of God's angels worship him. This word worship in the Greek is proskuneo. Literally, if you translate it, it means to kiss toward. But not the kiss between equals, but rather the kiss of a servant to a master, kissing the hand of a servant to a master. And that's why we see uh, throughout the entire scripture, when anyone bows or bends their knee, they use the word proskuneo because it indicates worship. Remember that song that we have, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And so the angels bow to God, but not all of them, do they? There was one angel. His name was Lucifer, the angel of light. A powerful angel, they say, more powerful than almost all the others that refused to recognize the limits of himself and the limits of God. See, Lucifer wanted to be God. He wanted to switch limits. He wanted to be limitless and to put God in his place. And so Lucifer, Satan, led a revolt against God. And of course, he was defeated by the limitless one, and he was cast down to await his ultimate destruction. You know, Satan and his angels who followed him recognized who Jesus was, didn't they? Some of the best confessions in the New Testament are by the demons. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. See, they recognized, but they didn't worship. 
There's a difference between recognizing and worship. Jesus shows that it's not only the angels who struggle with this recognition and not worship, but it's people themselves. Remember this parable where Jesus said there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press, and he leased it to tenants, and he went to another country. And when the season of fruit grew near, he sent his servants to receive uh, his share of the fruit. But they beat the servants, and he sent more servants, and they killed those. Then finally he said, I will send my son because they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. What will the owner of the vineyard do when he comes? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and give out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. There's a big difference between recognition and worship. Story I saw recently, Newsday, April 2011. Ira, Vermont is a whisper of a town with just 447 residents. No school, no downtown, miles of unpaved road. So it's an understatement to see that the town was abuzz when the mild-mannered treasurer was accused of cooking the books. And they were downright floored when they learned that Donald Hewitt had embezzled $400,000 over 30 years. To put it in perspective, the town government's annual budget is just $212,000. Hewitt, who pleaded guilty to wire fraud today and could face 20 years in prison, reportedly wrote checks to himself out of the town equipment and cemetery funds, stole residents' property, tax payments, and bypassed paying his own at all. Everyone trusted me, said Hewitt, uh, who had the post from 1977 to 2009. Said someone uh, in the office, it feels like he stole $1,000 from each of us. He needs to be punished. I do not want to see Donald Hewitt get off scot-free with his hand slapped either. You see, Donald Hewitt embezzled that which was not his to take. And so in the same way, there is a rightful God who has given us the blessings that we receive every day. The air we breathe, the light we see the relationships we have. But he calls us to proskuneo the Son. To recognize the Son and to not worship him is to embezzle, to steal his glory in hopes of making it yours. We must not do that. Rather, like the angels, we must worship. We must put Jesus in his proper place. How do we do that? Let me give you three hints, three tips. Number one, elevate him in your mind. You know, we spend so much time in our mind putting ourselves in the center of our universe, don't we? I have three, three favorite people. It's me, myself, and I. But we must elevate him in our mind. We must put him first and, and others second and, our, and, uh, and ourselves last. Ways that we can elevate him in our mind? Number one, take time to read God's word. See, by reading God's word, we're saying, your word is the most important word, and so I will read it because I need to know what you have to say. Joshua 1.9, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. And we must spend time in prayer if we want to elevate Christ in our mind. Because prayer is our way of saying to Christ, you are the most important person in my day. And I am going to put you first in my agenda book to show that I need my direction from you to elevate him in our mind. But number two, we must also elevate him with our things. Our things don't belong to us, do they? You ever notice how small a coffin is? Pretty tight, not a lot of space in there, is it? We can't take it with us because it doesn't belong to us. And so like this Vermont uh, treasure, we must not embezzle God's goods, we must rather reassign them to Jesus. We must view ourselves not as an owner, but rather as a steward. Let me ask you in your life, what is it that you're holding on to tight that you won't let go? Sure, I can let these other things go, but there's this one thing that I just can't let go. Guess what? That's the thing that Jesus wants. Because Jesus is the king, and therefore he says there is not one square inch of this universe that Christ does not say, this belongs to me. Finally, we must elevate him with our hopes and our dreams. All of us have dreams, whether it's a house, a car, a profession, that special someone who we're going to live our life with. We all have these dreams. But to elevate him above our dreams is to say, Christ, you know what is best for me. And I will put you above me because you will lead me to the place where I need to go. So I will delight myself in the Lord so he will give me the desires of my heart. See, the only way to break through our limits is to trust Christ who has no limits. Christ's altitude determines our altitude. So if we recognize his name, we respond in worship. That leads us to my third point, my last point, where we receive his renown. Some of you may be saying, I don't, I don't know if I can do this, Carlos. I mean, this, this calls for so much, to give over so much to him. Well, all of our lives, we have this question, will we look for our glory or Christ's glory? But let me suggest to you that that is a false dichotomy that our glory and Christ's glory are tied to each other. See, there is a way to break through our limits to the glory of Christ. When we see Christ hearing these promises, we must, yes, understand that he is the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, the eternal begotten. But he is also the representative of man. That's why he became a man. That's why he came to earth. And so when Christ stands before God, he stands in our stead as our representative. And so the promises that are given to Christ are given to us. The glory that is given to Christ is given to us through Christ. Our glory is tied to Christ. There is a way to break through our limits. That's why in verse 6 we see that it talks about Jesus as the firstborn. He's eternally begotten. It means he's the firstborn of this new creation of humanity. See, when he came, our limits were changed when he was resurrected. 
when he was resurrected, when you look at the resurrection, you're seeing your resurrection. When you look at Jesus' exaltation, his going up, his being a king, you're seeing your own future coronation in Christ. When you see the declaration of Christ upon son, uh, the Son, this is my Son, you see the declaration that Christ is giving to you. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter through the work of Christ. And when we need the power for daily living, when we bump up against the limits of our sinfulness, when it seems that we cannot go any further we have the one who through we can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. The only way to break through our limits is to trust in Christ who has no limits. Christ's altitude determines our altitude. So where will you praise Christ? Maybe he's just a spiritual man, an enlightened prophet. Or maybe he's the son of God. You have to choose. Who will you bow your need to? C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth that you are the Son declared by God by your resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And so we bow our knee to worship. Lord, there may be one in this room who has never done this, who has never recognized you and bowed his knee toward you. Lord, I pray that you would break through his or her heart, that he would see the truth that you are Lord. And Lord, finally, we recognize that you have given us your renown, that in Christ is our redemption, that Jesus has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, and will ultimately be our consummation when we rise to be with the Father in the new heaven and the new earth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, now is our opportunity to respond. <clears throat>